All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, have mercy. There's, there's a lot here, um, a lot that is, uh, at least at first pass, quite confounding. Um, uh, but uh, we don't want to lose sight that your word in its entirety is good news, uh, that it is life, and that through it you bring life. And so, Lord, would you this morning, we just want to pray the prayer that kind of echoes those people who came to the disciples and said, show us Jesus. Uh, you know, please, sir, show us Jesus. Uh, that's our prayer, uh, that you would, you would show us our Lord and Savior in uh, fresh ways this morning. Uh, Lord, if our faith is in him, uh, Lord, would, uh, would our faith grow in him? Lord, if we're here um, contemplating these things, resistant to them, questioning them, curious about them, Lord, would today be the day where you would show Jesus um, in a saving way, uh, that he would be accepted and welcomed in to life. Uh, so that abundant life would be enjoyed. Uh, we commend it all to you uh, in your spirit. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, not, not long before he died, uh, Buck Owens, the country singer, gave an interview. And uh, you know, Buck Owens was not just a great musician. He was also quite a, quite a good businessman. He... Uh, plowed a lot of his uh, music earnings into the purchasing of radio stations in Southern California and did quite well with that. And in the course of the interview, uh, you know, he mentioned to the guy interviewing him how little he cared for uh, contemporary, or contemporary country music uh, at the time. And the, and the interviewer jumped in and he said, well, you know, help me understand this. This is the music that the radio stations that you own play. You know, so, you know, isn't there some kind of contradiction there? And, and Buck Owens said, not at all. He said, you're misunderstanding the whole thing. I'm not in the music business anymore. I'm in the advertising business. And, you know, it sounds so obvious, but it's, it's kind of easy to lose sight of the business you're in. Um, I, I imagine that, you know, at, at the bottom of the failure of everything from business to football teams to churches to marriages... Um, and all kinds of other things. It, it basically comes down to that. Re remembering what business you're in. <laughs> remembering what you're all about. Uh, you lose sight of, of, of what you are and what you're supposed to do. Now we're continuing in Mark, and Jesus is very focused on this, this exact thing. He is intent that his disciples would know who he is and what he's come to do. Uh, and what that means for them as his uh, followers. And, and there's three themes, I think, that emerge from this that I want to just kind of hang our hat on this morning. We're going to look at Jesus' mission. We're going to look at human ambition. And then we're going to look at a kingdom destination. Uh, now, Jesus begins by stating, or I would say rather restating his message. Uh, in fact, in just the last couple of chapters, this marks the third time uh, that he's explained uh, his mission. Uh, each time he's done that, he has referenced the necessity of his death. Um, and each time, Jesus stating his, his mission is met with opposition. Uh, of course, the first time provoked sharp opposition from Peter. The second time, what we looked at last week, provoked kind of subtle opposition from his disciples. They brought up a Bible verse that they felt, you know, might contradict what Jesus is <laughs> telling them. And, and now we're at the third time. Uh, and you're expecting, you know, more opposition. 
But this time, there's no rebuke, there's no rejoinder, there's no scripture reference. Instead, there is silence uh, on the matter. Now, of course, silence is not nothing. Uh, You know, I'd rather have just about anything but the silent treatment. Um, And, you know, Mark actually tells us that this this silence is meaningful. Um, He says they're silent because they're afraid. They're afraid to ask Jesus what this means. Um, And the fear may well be because this time, as Jesus states his mission, uh, he adds a detail. He adds a detail he hasn't added before that he hasn't mentioned. He says this time he'll be delivered into the hands of men. Um, He has said before that he'll be delivered into the hands of certain kinds of men. He said back in chapter 8, I'll be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, which is to say that his... His uh, execution will be carried out by legitimized religious and civic authorities. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, about the importance of that, that it highlights, it shows how human governance, like human people, is broken, okay? That human justice is far from perfect justice, that at our best, we're pitiable kings ruling pitiful kingdoms. You know, as one writer put it, in condemning Jesus... The world condemns the best of itself. So Jesus won't die at the hands of the mob, but but the mob will have a role, and he brings that up here. It's not just the rulers, but it'll be regular people who will have a hand in this, and that's significant. That's a very significant thing for the disciples to hear because guess what? They're regular people. Um, And what Jesus said means that, you know, they, they cannot take shots from the cheap seats saying, yeah, well, you know how these, these rabbis are. You, you know about these politicians. But if we were in charge, things would be different. Well, they wouldn't be. Uh, Jesus has just stated uh, that, in fact, you don't stand apart from this, and, in fact, people just like you will play a part. Now, that detail, you know, um, allowed to soak in, you know, appropriately should have prompted you know, some introspection, some measure of conviction. But the next thing we know is uh, they're fighting. Uh, They get into a conflict. I should say they're fighting again. Um, This time they're arguing over who's the greatest. And, you know, maybe uh, this argument kind of flared up because they wanted to make it clear that even though Jesus will be delivered into the hands of men, it won't be delivered into this kind of, you know, from the hands of this kind of man. I'm better than that. In fact, I'm better than all of you. And, and of course, this, is, this isn't their first argument, but it's becoming clear that all of their arguments, I think, are kind of emerging from the same thing. There's, there's, a, there's a taproot here. You know, so lots of different kinds of arguments, but the source is the same. It's a little bit like in a marriage, right? I mean, you can be arguing about the bills one day and, and the toothpaste tube the next day, but, you know, at the source of it, you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing. And, and, you know, for me, when I do premarital counseling, I talk about this, you know, that, that, that the great enemy, the great destructor is not merely self-righteousness, which we all have in great measure, but justified self-righteousness. Self-righteousness that I am convinced, um, you know, I can justify. That, you know, if only things would center more around me, if only I would be in the driver's seat, if only things would be done in the way I think they should be done. If the toothpaste tube was squeezed from the bottom end and not the top end, if the bills were put on auto pay and not, you know, out of the checkbook, then all would be well. That's essentially what 
their fights are all about. Justified self-righteousness, a desire to keep themselves at the center, a desire for the mission to be defined by what they desire more than what Jesus is stating as his desires. And you know, if there's any doubt about that, if there's any doubt about the intensity of that, you know, here they are jockeying for position, fighting, you know, arguing about who's greatest while Jesus's words of being rejected and arrested and killed are still just kind of hanging in the air. It's quite a contrast, right? I mean, you have got unbridled ambition, you know, in friction with Jesus's mission. Um, and look, ambition rightly uh, directed can be a good thing. We, we certainly celebrate it in our culture. But it wasn't so long ago that ambition carried a largely con- uh, negative connotation. Um, it, it was seen as something of a vice opposite the virtue of dedication. You know, where um, dedication was kind of understood as that drive that was characterized by a concern, a selfless concern for a greater good, whatever it may cost you personally. Ambition was seen as a drive, you know, kind of characterized by the things that I want driven by personal selfish needs. And the etymologies of these words kind of draw out that distinction. Ambition derives from, a word, from words having to do with kind of navigating around things. Um, seeking favor, while dedication speaks of consecrating oneself, of uh, giving oneself over to a greater purpose, of taking vows. And and I get into that distinction because I think it's a helpful one to apply here. Um, You know, uh, this personal concern for status among the disciples is overwhelming the greater purpose for Jesus to save. Now, this plays out quite dramatically in this passage, you know, but it's easy to lose sight of how common a dynamic this is in a church. Um, You know, how easy it is for us to be more energetic about our status than our service. You know, how, how easy it is for us to be more concerned with our felt needs being met than seeing that the mission of Jesus advance. You know, chief of sinners here, by the way. You know, there's that old joke about the person who complained to the pastor, you know, saying, Pastor, I don't like the songs we're singing. And, you know, the pastor said, well, that's okay because we're not worshiping you. <laughs> you know, and good point. And it makes the point, right? So, you know, they, they've had lots of arguments, but, you know, the, 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 the taproot is finally being exposed, the source of it all. Um, and that is uh, what they've been arguing about all along. You know, who's the greatest? Um, Of course, the answer for each of them is, I am. And, you know, uh, you can sort of see this as you look back at some of their previous conflicts. You can see, you know, I would have brought bread into the boat. I regret relying on you knuckleheads to bring bread into the boat. And now we have no bread. You know, I could have pulled off that exorcism, um, you know, forgetting uh, that, it's only, those who can pr- it's only by prayer that anyone can be set free. So, you know, they don't confront or question Jesus directly in this passage, but they're kicking against his mission. And you see that in their conflicts. And Jesus responds to all this with, again, teaching. Uh, this time he actually gets in teaching position. He sits down, he gathers the 12 around them, and the first thing he says is in response to uh, what they've been arguing about. And he says, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. Um, Again, that's a direct response to the argument they've been having. 
but, but it's important to appreciate how crazy it sounds. Um, because, you know, here all along, I was thinking in order to be first, you had to be, you know, first. You know, and second is first loser. Um, but Jesus says, no, last of all is first. Now, Mark takes pains to tell us that Jesus has taught this to the 12. The 12. Pretty exclusive company. 12 not merely connected to Jesus, but the 12 people who know that they've been selected by Jesus. And, and you know, that exclusivity is pretty, pretty heady stuff, right? That might be figuring in here. I can remember, you know, a few years ago, one of my best friends was the lead singer and songwriter for an alternative rock band in the early 2000s that had a little success. And, and he, he uh, you know, when I was living in Texas, he said, hey, you want to go up to Denton and go to this music festival? And I said, let's do it. So, you know, we did that together, and I got behind the velvet rope. I watched shows not with the audience. I sat on an amplifier on the side stage. You know, I, I met and I hung out with some rock stars. I, I, I availed myself of the free catering and the open bar. You know, at one point, I was sitting in the, the, the hospitality tent, which looked like, uh, you know, I can't remember the name of that store, but I mean, this fancy deal. And this person comes in with all these, uh, des like, designer clothes and hats and T-shirts and sweatshirts and just puts them all on a rack and leaves. And I'm looking at this stuff, and, and there's, like, this drummer in there, and I go, man, this is nice stuff. Where, what's the process for buying something? He goes, you don't have to buy it, man. Just take what you want. They give us this stuff for free. It's heady stuff. On the way home, you know, my, my friend and I were talking about it and how much fun we had. And he said, yeah, you know, he said at one point, he goes, yeah, you know, it was fun. But can't you see I'd get a little old? And I said, no. <laughs> I can't see how this would get old at all. I love this. You know, intoxicating. And I want to say illusory, deeply. You know, I got a little alarmed at my own heart, you know, how readily after such a short time of being on the receiving end of some special treatment, you know, I began to imagine that I was special. You know, um, when in fact the exact opposite was true. You know, I wasn't there because of me. Believe me, none of these people wanted a pastor hanging out in the hospitality tent. <laughs> I was there because of another. I was there because of my friend. Now, Peter has just identified Jesus as the Christ, um, not as a king, but as the king. And it seems disciples love the idea. They love the idea of, be, of Jesus being king, uh, I think in part because they love the privilege. They love the power. They love the, the, the status of being connected to him in that way. They love feeling special. And yet, you know, that intoxicating feeling of being connected to the king, you know, um, is, is utterly at odds with the kind of king Jesus keeps telling them he is and the kind of kingdom he tells them that he's bringing to bear. He keeps telling them, I'm not that kind of king. I'm a suffering king. I'm a I'm a, I'm a king who dies. I'm a servant king. And, and he calls his subjects to a self-serving discipleship. Or a, not a self-serving discipleship, but a sacrificial discipleship. 
So when Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all, he's, he, notice he doesn't say there's no glory in it. There is glory in that. Um, uh, but it's glory of an utterly different kind. In fact, he doesn't even say it's bad to be first. He just says there's a whole different way to be first. An utterly different upside-down kind of way. Um, and he drives this, this idea home with an illustration where he takes up a child in his arms and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Now, now we've got to do a little cross-cultural calibration here to really get this understanding because we think kids are cute. You know, we look at kids and associate them with things like innocence and purity and wonder. We look to childhood as like something that was like tragically lost. And we moved to Santa Fe to recapture the childhood, right? But all that stuff is historically and culturally very odd. You know, most, most cultures, uh, this is true today, and this is certainly true of Jesus' culture, viewed a child as an unformed, prone to foolishness, needful, messy little person. You know, we look at, at verses like Proverbs 22.6, okay, famous verse, see it in parenting stuff all the time, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And, and we look at that and we go, well, that verse is about, you know, my parenting being really great, you know, and bringing out the best in my child so that when they grow up, all that potential will be realized. But, but I think there's a much better case that what this proverb is actually teaching that if you, is that if you let a child go in the way they want to go, they'll never depart from the childish, childishness. They will remain unformed, foolish, unable to live up to the adult responsibilities, right? So when Jesus illustrates his statement that if anyone would be first, they must be last, saying, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, he's not saying, you know, if only you could recapture the innocence and wonder of childhood, then you'll receive me. He's saying, if you want to follow me, you need to know where you are on the scale of prestige. Not the greatest. Dependent. Not, you know, masters of the universe. Messy. Not fully formed, but needing to be formed. Not full of wisdom, but lacking it. You know, um, not, not those who get to exert your power, but those who need to be, have, a, have a greater power prevail upon them. To be under the authority of the Lord. You know, you, you just can't know the king and follow the king by way of personal ambition. Uh, you must know him and follow him, Jesus is saying here, from a particular position, and that is that of a child. That is that of one who's in need of everything. And, and critically, you know, Jesus actually speaks to that. He says that, you know, it is only from that position when you realize the depth of your need, when you take that childhood posture, that's the position from which you, you can receive. And what he says you receive is, is beyond anything you could ever imagine. He says, you know, what you'll receive is me. And you'll receive the one who sent me. So, so in other words, children don't just merely get the benefits of the king. They don't just get closeness to the king. They get the king. Unreservedly so. They don't, they, they, they don't just get the benefits of knowing God. They get God. And at this point, John jumps in. John speaks up. 
and tells Jesus they came across someone casting out demons in his name. Uh, and they put a stop to it because he wasn't following us. Now, we could spend a lot of time in John talking about the need for this person to be following them. Um, but, you know, he, he's, John in this moment is seizing, I think, on this idea of little ones uh, being received in his name. And John goes, well, let me tell you a story about how seriously we take your name, Jesus. So he steps up and he gives an example of their allegiance to Jesus by saying, you know, we confronted a huckster you know, who had the temerity to use your name to cast out a demon. Can you believe that? Now, now, in his description of this, John actually, if you notice, he speaks of two groups of people. He, he has kind of a one-of-us group, and then he's got a not-one-of-us group. And, and, you know, he seems to be envisioning and beginning to articulate a ministry where one of us would be indispensable to the ministry. You know, where people would come to one of us in a crisis, uh, where people would look to us in their hour of need. You know, and again, John is just, he is saying again, we're the greatest. He's claiming a special status. You know, never mind that it just so happens that this not one of us person did something very good. He cast out a demon, and not only that, he did it in Jesus' name. And, and also escaping John's attention is that this not one of us person actually succeeded where the disciples had so spectacularly failed when they tried to deliver someone from a demon in the botched exorcism shortly before this. So, you know, stepping back, you kind of have to ask the question, whose glory, whose honor, and whose name are you actually zealous for? Jesus' name or your name? And I got to say, as I looked at that this week, I I just thought, this is the question that must be kept front of mind in absolutely everything we do in this church. Whose honor? Whose glory and whose name are we actually zealous for? Jesus' name? John's name? <laughs> Your name? Yeah, just to put a finer point on it, what if, you, what if you applied that question just to everything you did? Everything we do. And there's a ton of good stuff we do here. But you know, what if that question was applied to serving the needy, to knitting prayer shawls, to singing these songs, to preaching these sermons, to ministering to these kids? All of it, asking the question, maybe to put a finer point on it, who will be celebrated? Who will get the credit? Whose name will be remembered? Jesus or us? I I gave an announcement a minute ago about our 20th anniversary service here. And, you know, that is a wonderful, worthy thing to commemorate. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate. But we must be very clear about what we are celebrating, about whom we are celebrating, so that we could say along with the psalmist about the founding and sustaining of Christ Church Santa Fe, that this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. I've been a part in my ministry career of three church plants, one in which I was the, the lead planter, and uh, we had a great day. We, uh, in, in the course of that work, we admitted our first members. And I declared a ban. I issued a fatwa on anyone referring to themselves as a founding member. And, and, and also referring to me as a founding pastor. 
for the simple reason that, that th those designations are simply not true. They're not true. That language is untrue to what causes any church to be established, causes any church to grow, or any church to thrive. Um, for the simple reason that we're not the founders. Jesus is. Uh, what, whatever we may have participated in, whatever we may have given, what, whatever we have witnessed or enjoyed, you know, was willed before the foundations of the earth. It was prayed for before we, any of us in this room, were even a glimmer in our mama's eye. It, it is a work born of the Spirit's work in seeking worshipers to worship in spirit and truth. And we get the great privilege of enjoying seeing God do that and enjoying letting him use us in that. But, you know, we are workers in the Lord's vineyard. So, you know, some of us showed up at 8 in the morning. Some of us showed up at 4 in the afternoon. But it's his vineyard. And, and, you know, the greatest legacy that any church can have, honestly, is for us to be forgotten and Jesus to be remembered. That's a gift. It is not good news for people to remember John Standridge as central to their faith. <laughs> Believe me. Uh, it'd be, it's very good news to remember Jesus. So Jesus says something to John about this man who did this exorcism in his name, and, and it must have been a little bit of a shock. He goes, John, don't stop him. Um, I have no doubt John imagined he was doing something good, that he had a, he had a responsibility to manage Jesus' good reputation, but Jesus seems quite content and very comfortable to take care of his own reputation, thank you very much. And he takes this very straightforward position that an exorcism in his name is an exorcism in his name. And, and, a, and if a demon is gone, a demon is gone. Hallelujah. And he said back in chapter 3 that Satan can't cast out Satan. What he's witnessed is, you know, a great work of the advance of the kingdom. The demon's gone, a person is set free, and Jesus gets the honor, and that's all that matters, even if a Presbyterian didn't do it. So John goes on to explain, you know, that the one, or Jesus goes on to explain that the one who's not, not against us is for us, and you know, so while, while John is kind of wrapped up in this distinction, this one of us, not one of us distinction, you know, born of this sense of competition, Jesus is wholly fixed on a destination. Uh, he is wanting John to be deeply aware of where this is going. And actually, John has just witnessed that. He's seen the Lord work beyond their bounds with someone he doesn't even know. The kingdom is moving. And, and he says, John, or Jesus says this interesting thing. He says that, that those who provide his followers with something as seemingly insignificant as a cup of cold water, they will receive their reward. He's speaking of a kind of an ultimate reward here, the reward of heaven. And you know, that cup of cold water being given to somebody, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, this, is, uh, this, this embodies where the loyalties lie, that, that you'll be joined with others who aren't of you, um, who will be sensitive to the needs of Jesus' people, who will have solidarity with you in the kingdom. They will provide relief. They won't stand on the sidelines. Um, you, you'll be on the receiving end of kindnesses because of people's loyalty to their king. That, that's where this is headed. This will be a kingdom of mutual service, of serving those who serve him because he has so beautifully served us. A community where that insider-outsider distinction is always being broken down because all kinds of people have become kingdom people who live for Jesus' name, his glory, his laud, his honor, and they're very unconcerned about their own name. That's the promise. 
um, and attached to it is what I think is probably one of the most severe warnings in the whole Bible. I mean, I got up at five in the morning this morning going, whatever I will have to say to you will be utter, utterly inadequate because there's so much here, but I'll do my best. Uh, Jesus gives this very hard warning. Uh, it's critical to, for starters to understand it is principally a warning not to outsiders, not to people who, don't, who haven't, at least with their mouth, expressed some uh, faith in Jesus, but it's given to insiders, uh, to, to religious people. Religious types who would keep weak and needy people from Jesus by causing them to sin. Um, Jesus' shorthand for weak and needy human beings is little ones. Not just children, it would certainly include children, but it's all kinds of people. The, the picture here is one of messy people, and are there any other kind, who've, who've come to faith in Jesus and, and are on their way in their discipleship until until someone steps in and trips them up. The word for sin here, you may even have it in, your, in, in another translation from the one I read. The, word, the better word is stumble. Someone steps in and makes them stumble. And, you know, I, sadly, tragically, Christians, churches, pastors like me, not only do this with great regularity, I want to say we do it with abandon. <laughs> I can remember talking to a pastor once who mentioned to me we're having lunch, and he mentioned to me that nearly all the families in their church homeschool their kids, and that they as a church have taken to promoting that particular approach to education. And, and I just asked him at this lunch, I said, well, let me ask you this. Would it be uncomfortable? Would it be difficult for a non-homeschooling family to attend your church? And he said, you know, it really would, to be honest with you. Now, by all accounts, there's a, there's a lot to commend homeschooling. I mean, you want to talk to me and my wife about our educational journey with our four kids. We have done, we've been there, done there, bought the t-shirt. We've done it all. Um, you know, it is one of many good and valid choices families make to educate their children. Amen. But however good and wonderful it may be, what it can never be is an obstacle to Jesus. You can't approach the door of the church and go, well, I don't homeschool my kids. I guess I won't be going there. Right? And you just apply it all over the place. There, there may be much to commend your causes. There may be much to commend your culture or your politics, what you do for fun, your favorite football team, your favorite flavor of ice cream, okay? All things potentially good in and of themselves, but none of them can stand between people and Jesus. And the way those things become stumbling blocks is when the idea is communicated, either overtly or subtly, that in order to come to Jesus, in order to grow in Jesus, you've got to bring something to the table. You've got to hang on to something. You've got to have something in addition to him to demonstrate your commitment, your seriousness about discipleship. And I just want to say that is an utter repudiation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because a saving and sustaining relationship with Jesus is not predicated upon our worthiness. It's predicated on his. We don't need more than him and his gospel. And, and I certainly could go on and on about convictions that accord with Scripture that I would, would desire for everyone in this room to have. Okay? Um, there are many good and worthy causes. I would encourage you, know, you to support but when, were I to make the case that, that those convictions and causes are necessary 
for you to come to Jesus and to grow in Jesus, I would be doing immense damage to your faith. Uh, This is what Paul calls uh, in another place in the Bible, shipwrecking your faith. Just throwing it on the rocks. We begin with Jesus and we trust that in coming to him, he will bring conviction. He alone is adequate for your conscience and will do the good work by his spirit to align it with his will and that which is in accord with his holy word. And I am not at liberty to bind it. No minister is. And to know, to know him and grow in him requires repentance and faith, not just once, but in an ongoing way, right? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And this is why it's critical that the church not be all about the business of promoting causes, however worthy they may be, but should be utterly consumed with preaching Christ. That's, you know, I have the most sim- we have the most simple job in the world, proclaiming Christ. I, I remember... When I was in the Boston area, a church a member of ours uh, was involved in adopting some children, and he came to me and he said, we should be the adoption church. We should be the adoption church. It's so good. We need to, you know, challenge our people. They need to be doing adoption. We need to be preaching sermons on adoption. We need to be teaching classes on adoption. We need to open up some of our office space for the adoption agency. You know, and, and look, I'm a big fan of adoption. I was adopted. I had a very positive experience in adoption. But do you see how the good cause can displace the great cause? It just can, and it does with regularity. We are not in that business. That may be a fruit of what we're doing, but the business we're in is proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is incredibly serious business, which is why Jesus attaches the strongest warnings in the whole Bible to it. Um, he says, you know, you'd be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck than to do that. Um, it's, it's worth considering how Jesus puts this. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, the punishment for causing one, someone to stumble is akin to having a millstone tied around your neck. He says the millstone scenario is better than the thing you would have in store. The, the millstone ocean analogy or picture is the rosier picture. Than, than the actual consequence. So that, you know, causing a little one to stumble is to risk putting yourself in a situation in which, you know, in which someday you would be wishing for the millstone. And it, it gets you asking, well, how, what could be worse? And Jesus speaks quite vividly of what is worse. He speaks of a place called hell. And again, I got up early this morning, kind of tossed and turned. This is a huge topic it's very important. I, am, I have inadequate time, um, and I also, this topic will come up again in the preaching of Mark, so keep coming. But I just want to say for now that hell is a doctrine taught in the Bible as a real place of punishment after death for opposing God's rule and reign. And there's much to say about it, and we will speak more about it. But what I want to put in view at this particular moment in this text is to keep in view what Jesus is so zealously protecting, what, what, what he loves so dearly. There's a relationship, right, between the severity of punishment and the preciousness of the thing being protected. You see this in our, in our, in our own uh, criminal law, right? The, the worst criminal punishments are connected to 
the taking of life, right? Why? Because we as a culture say the most precious, precious thing in this country is human life. And so our Lord has put in place punishments, not because he's cruel or capricious, but to protect and to preserve and promote that which he loves the most. Uh, that which is most precious to him, which is human beings made in his image. Human beings bruised and broken by the fall. Human beings with fragile faith. Human beings with a with big record of failure. Human beings who are needy and weak and are, are all, they're little ones. So, so when it comes to his little ones, he is fierce and he is zealous in his protection of them. And that's why there's such severe consequences for anyone who would ever interfere with coming to Jesus. So he doubles down. He, he describes the stakes of causing to sin, causing to stumble, not, not just um, speaking of the, of the dire consequences that, that it would cause others, but he also invites some self-examination here. He, he, he kind of turns the tables and he, he says, you know, consider your own life. What may be causing you to sin? What is it about you that's stumbling you? Um, so that if there's anything at all that's keeping us from simple faith in Jesus, something that we might view as quite precious, something essential to our life, better to cut it off. No matter how essential you may think it is, no matter how useful, no matter how precious it may be. And, and, and he describes this in, you know, kind of horror movie terms. He describes these various acts of self-mutilation, you know, that would be better than to deal with severe consequences in the life to come. Now, Jesus, of course, is not urging anyone to literally do any of this, although there are some tragic stories in church history where people took this quite literally. Um, but he's making a point, a forceful one. He's saying better to hack off that which is causing you to sin so that you would live than to hang on to it and die. He concludes his teaching not talking about suffering or severing, but he talks about salt. He says first that everyone will be salted with fire. Now, you know, salt has lots of uses. It was quite precious in Jesus' day. And the use he has in mind here is that of purification, um, that of cleansing. Uh, he adds that anyone who uh, follows him will be refined, purified with fire. Um, it, it's, a, it's good. Uh, it's a good and necessary thing that the stuff be burned away while the necessary stuff remain. You see, he's, saying, he's still saying what he's been saying all along, that if anyone would come after me, it's necessary to de deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow me for whoever would save his life, whoever would cling to those things that are most precious, that they view most essential outside of Jesus, it's better to lose that for the gospel's sake than live. And clinging to our own life so fiercely, we risk losing the life he has for us. So he's gracious to say, get rid of it. It's not as good. Uh, and, and, and that he'll be at work in the refining and the renewing. And then he says something else about salt. This time not about its purifying application, but about its preserving one. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how could you ever make it salty again? And, and here again, he's, he's reminding them of the business he is in. He is saying salt has the singular purpose of preservation. It must do the job of preservation. It must do the job of saving. Or it's failed in its reason for being. 
If salt becomes sand, it can't do its salt thing. So you must, Jesus says, have salt in yourself. Um, You must have within yourself, and he's speaking, I think, here quite pointedly about a relationship with him, a faith relationship with him where he is alive in you. He lives in your heart. You must have within you a singular presence at work so that what would otherwise be lost would be saved and that which would otherwise be utterly corrupted would be made pure. That is a good description of salt, and it is an excellent description description of our Savior. And that's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus who left glory so that we would enter it. Jesus who was maimed so that we would be made whole. Jesus who endured hell that we would get to heaven. Jesus who for a time uh, was severed from his father, lost, so that we would be saved. Jesus who was broken that we may be made beautiful. He is a great Savior. He is greater than anything we're hanging on to. Glory be to his name. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you, Jesus, for your zeal, um, your fierceness, and your love for your little ones. Um, We rely on that here, uh, I think, more than we know. And... uh, and we want to we relish that, that we have in you a, a gentle lamb and a ferocious lion. Um, Lord, your excellencies are, mul- are multiplied before us as you've revealed them here. And you um, don't only reveal them in the preaching, you allow, the, you allow us to experience them at the table. And so, Lord, um, I thank you that you point us to this table uh, as that which points to you, that which points to what's true about you, and we learn something of ourselves too, that we are those little ones. We're not the greatest. Um, and we, um, when we understand uh, how, in fact, needy we are, how messy we are, how dependent we are, um, you know, then we're in a good place because then we receive you. Then we find that you are f- a far greater, more gracious, more beautiful Savior than anything we could hope to attain for ourselves And so, Lord, bring all that home to bear as we come to this table. Um, You've given us a meal. Uh, That's meaningful, that we would come knowing that we need to be fed, nourished, um, not just in this life, but for the life to come, and that you, in fact, are that life. So, uh, Lord, feed us here. Show us yourself, um, and you get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.